morning, all. It's so nice to be here with you. You get the opportunity to come up here and speak. This morning, we're going to have some fun. We're going to try some things. We're going to go on some adventures together. We're, we're preaching out of John this morning, and when I, when I was asked to speak this morning and I was told what the passage would be, I, I had a moment because John and I have sort of a mixed relationship. I don't know that I've always loved the book of John because I find it to be a bit opaque. One, one, one uh, commentator I was reading over the last week or so called it a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. Said, yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds like my experience with John. And, and so when I was told I was going to preach in John, I, was, I had mixed feelings because I, I love John, I appreciate John, but, but it's not my go-to. And then I was told, well, it's going to be the first 18 verses of John. So John 1, 1 through 18 is where we're going to be. If you have a Bible, you can grab it and start making your way there. And I went, well, that's good. That's a familiar passage for me. And then I thought, wow, no, that's a familiar passage for me and everyone else. And, it's a, and there's a lot there. What, what am I going to do with the first 18 verses of John? So, so I said, okay, well, I'm going to start reading. And I'm going to start praying, and I'm going to let God show me what we're going to talk about. And as I refreshed my memory of the prologue of Scripture, I was reminded that, of the prologue of John, I should say, I was reminded that the first 18 verses are just that. They're a prologue of the book of John. So they represent the same major themes in the book of John. So really what I've been asked to do this morning is preach on the entire book of John. So I hope you pack the lunch. We're going to hang out. We're going to preach. We're going to talk. Um, and we'll see when we get done. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow. Maybe second service can just come join us. But um, Indeed, it is a prologue. It, it's a primer for the rest of the book. It's the themes of the book of John sort of packed into a summary uh, that some purport he wrote after he finished the book, which makes sense to me, right? I finished writing my whole message, and then I think, okay, how do I want to start them off? Well, I'm going to give them a summary, what we would have called an abstract back in, in, in school, and show them what I want to tell them throughout the whole book. Because John, unlike some of the other authors, doesn't want to take a, a, a graded approach. He doesn't want to land the plane gently on the runway. He wants to make sure that you get his message and that you get it right off the bat. So unlike what we would call the synoptic gospels, John has a different purpose in mind. His purpose is to make sure that you get his message with crystal clarity right out of the gates. And then he will use the book to expand on it and to reinforce it and to ground it so that you understand. I'm certainly going to miss more than I'm going to cover this morning. There's no way to do a thorough job with this scripture in 40 minutes. So I will do my very best to cover things. If there are things you want me to talk more about, send me an email and I would love to chat about them because these are truly rich passages. Certainly many weeks could be spent preaching over this, and a lot of times if people are doing a, a long series in John, they will spend more than a week in the prologue, but we're going to cover it this morning. So the question then becomes, well, what should I talk about? What do I make the purpose of my sermon? What do I make the, the, the central conversation? And we generally, as a practice, say that it's our goal to bring to you what the author meant to bring to his readers. I don't want to bring to you something other than what John wanted to say. I want to bring to you what John wanted to say to his readers. Now, that often requires some contextualizing. We have to make sure it is understood by our people and understood in our time, but largely that's our goal. So, well, how do we know what John wanted to bring to his readers? 
There's a couple ways we can know, one of which is we can let the text interpret the text, right? We can let the Bible tell us what the Bible is supposed to mean. John does a nice job for me. He made my job a little bit easier this morning. In chapter 20 of the book, verses 30 and 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what John says is the purpose of his book as a whole is that you would know who Christ is and that by believing in him, you would have faith. You would have life in Jesus. These are the two messages that he wants you to hear without fail in his book. So it stands to reason then that if the prologue covers the major themes of his book, that we're going to be talking about the same thing, right? We're going to be looking at who Christ is and how believing in him can bring life to you. Those are the things that I think John wants us to see. The other way we can determine that is through structure. This is where it's going to get a little interesting this morning. We're going to go on a little bit of a journey. Now, if we were in another place in the world, we might talk about climbing a mountain. But since we live in Arizona, we're going to talk about hiking down the Grand Canyon. The structure of this text, as with many texts, points to a specific point as sort of the main point. And the other verses parallel as they walk down to it. So we're going to take a hike to the Grand Canyon. Instead of going rim to rim as many do and as this scripture does, we're going to start at the two sides and we're going to meet at the Colorado River in the middle. For those of you who aren't from Arizona or for those of you listening online, the Grand Canyon's a really big hole in the ground, one of the seven wonders of the world that we're rather proud of because it's what we got, right? We're in the desert. So, And at the bottom of it is the Colorado River. That's the, the, the base of the canyon. So we're going to meet at the the river, and find out in this prologue what is it that John wanted to express. What is at the river in the middle of the canyon? So let me start by reading the scripture as a whole, and then I will start to peel it apart. So we're in John 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all who believe through him, I'm sorry, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives life to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who do receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from the, his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. But no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Father God, as we approach what is... 
the tremendous text that you gave for us this morning, God. I pray that you would give us sight beyond my, my reading and my interpretation, certainly, God, that, that you would come and speak through these words and through this text, and that my heart would be changed, Lord, and that the heart of those listening would be changed, Lord, that we would be able to know better who is Christ, Lord, and to be able to lean more fully into his word and into faith in him that we might receive the gift of life. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a lot there. Certainly part of the reason we're here, part of the reason we've arrived at this text is found in verse 14, right? And the word became flesh. That's the the sort of quintessential Christmas text, and we'll get back to cover it soon enough. But again, I want to focus on those two things that I think John wants us to know. One, he wants us to know who Christ is unequivocally, and he wants us to be able to then believe in him so that we would have life. So as we start our journey, we're going to be on the, on the two rims of the Grand Canyon, right? One on the north, one on the south, and we're going to start working our way down. And imagine for me that as you're walking, there are plaques with these scriptures, and we're going to look at them. So as each group starts on the rims, we come across the first plaque, which is verses 1 and 2. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Right? If you see this plaque, read it, and you think that makes perfect sense. I understand why I'm here. Let's keep going, right? This is one of those points where I go, John, I feel like it might have been easier to approach this a little more directly, right? But John says, no, I want you to know who Christ is, and I want you to know how he came into time and history as we know it. And he begins with these statements, in the beginning was the word. Well, when I hear in the beginning, if you spent time in the word, that should hearken back to another scripture, right? Truly in the beginning, as we read Genesis 1, it begins with in the beginning God. And here we see in the beginning was the word. Now that beginning isn't their beginning. That beginning is our beginning. Time is, time is a thing for us finite folks. It's not a thing for God. So the beginning he's talking about is the beginning of time as we know it. And we see that the word was there. Who's the word? Don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll get there, I promise. And it says that the word was with God. Okay, so we have God, we have the word, okay? And the word was God. Okay, wait, now, now there's a problem, right? Now, now I'm supposed to be with and I'm supposed to be. If I say that I was, I was with myself and I am myself, you all should start to have worries about me. This is not the way we talk about ourselves, right? We don't talk about being with and being. We talk about you either are with someone or you are that someone. You don't get to be both. But the word gets to be something else. The word gets to be both with and of the same being. The same essence and yet somehow distinct. Now, John doesn't take the time here to explain that. I'm not going to take the time this morning to explain that. That is an entire another sermon series that would be great to do, but that's not what we're doing this morning. It is enough for us to say that whatever the word is, it is both the essence of God and distinct from him. And then just to make sure you're listening, he says it again. He says, he was in the beginning with God. The person of the word was in the beginning and was with God. So who's the word, right? Now, now we're like, okay, so what are we talking about the word, right? I think if you've been in church for any length of time, you know that the word is Jesus Christ, right? You know that that's who we're referring to, but, but then why not, John, just come at this and say Jesus Christ was in the beginning, 
he was with God, and he was also God, in a complicated way that I'll explain later, right? That, that seems like the way this verse should read for me. It would be easier for me to understand that way. But he doesn't. He says the word, so why the word? Why that choice as an identifier? I don't think he is being intentionally opaque. But what he's doing is he's saying that there is more here then language can easily explain, so I'm going to do my best to give you a broad understanding. And the word, that word, the word, would have had significance in both Greek and Hebrew. I won't get into all that with you this morning again, but, but it would have had significance in both of those. It would have been a source of logic and understanding. It would have been a source of power for God as he spoke creation into being. His very words did the work of creation. And we're going to see that theme repeated in a moment. Furthermore, it's how we know God, right? It's his self-disclosure. He used words. He used language to help us understand who he is and what he wants from us and how he wants to relate to us. And it's God's power in redemption. We see him declaring us to be one thing and then to be another. And it seems that that declaration is ultimately the power in redemption. Again, it's his word that does that. So it's personified, but it's personified and given all of these other details. And then he roots who Christ is, who the word is in the act of creation. Verses 3 through 5, he says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So again, another new, excuse me, nuanced phrasing that could be interpreted a couple different ways. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now this sounds overly complex, but if we stop for a moment, we say, what does this tell us about the word? What does this tell us about Jesus Christ? Number one, it says he was the agent in all of creation. Now God, the Father, we we believe is the creator. That's what the scriptures tell us about his role. And yet we see through this scripture and others that Christ was the agent in all of creation. He was present and working through him in all of creation. Additionally, we see that he was not a part of creation. This is the, the phrasing, without him was not anything made that was made. So that means everything that was made was made through Christ. And anything that was made had to have come about that way so the negative of that is, therefore, nothing was made that didn't come through Christ. What that does is that set, sets Christ clearly on the outside of that bubble. That Christ cannot be one of those made things. Now, this, this sounds like a, a, a point hammered out of sort of weird words, but this is a really important point because this is where we start to break ways with many other faiths who would say, yes, Jesus Christ. Yeah, we, we believe Jesus. We know he was a person. We, we believe in in his life and his story. But this is one of those places where, where we part ways and we'd say that God makes it clear that he's not one of those created things. So if you believe that he is one of those created things, you, you, have, you have violated what God discloses about himself in his word. And then it says, in him was life and light, life and life was the light of men. Life, light, and darkness are major themes in John. He uses those words more than any of the other Gospels. 
And you're going to see them played on and against one another throughout the gospel. So if we were reading the whole book, we could spend all sorts of time talking about what those words mean in different contexts, and they will have a range of meanings. But they're very typical themes, and they bring us back to creation, right? They bring us back to this idea of a world that was dark and where there was nothing. And God did what? He spoke. He used his words to create. The power of God created light in all of existence. So when we say that Jesus, the word, was, was light, we have a, a reference to creation there at least. When he says life, again, everything was created through him. We have a reference to creation in him being life. And the darkness could not overcome him, right? He, he was able to create from nothing everything that is. But we also see images of, of the world, right? The life that's here now, he brought. The true life that's here, he brought. The darkness of sin and darkened understandings and separation from God and death and sickness and all of those things that, that we experience now in this world, he is the remedy to all of those things. He is the remedy to the darkness in this world right now. And if we look at the story of redemption and the story ultimately of the recreation of all of the earth, he again comes back to restore light and life in its true form. In Revelation, we're told that we won't need the sun anymore because we're going to have Jesus. We're going to have God. So he is truly life and light. One commentator says that John does not tell us and we are left to work out for ourselves precisely the illusion and its significance. Again and again, we find ourselves in this situation. I do not mean that John's thought is confused or that we cannot follow what he's saying. On the contrary, his thought is clear and his style is lucid. But his combination of simplicity and profundity often leaves us wondering whether we have caught all of his meaning. Everybody say profundity. Right? It's just a fun word, but... But his statements are simple, and they are profound. They are, they are accessible, and they are deep. So what about the South Rim, right? That's, that's the folks coming in off the North Rim. They're entering the trailhead. They see those signs. The folks coming in off the South, I'm going to take you now to verse 18. So go to the, the end of the prologue, and we're going to work our way back from that side, right? This is how this works. We're coming down to the middle. Where do we see him explaining who Christ is? On the back half, he says, verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now we see who Christ is rooted in God's identity. Rooted in who God is. Again, we see him with God, right? The, the only God who is at the Father's side. That's, that's, again, referring to the Word, referring to Christ. We see him with the Father. And we see him making him known, right? That's exactly what we talked about with the word, right? This idea of, of using self-disclosure, of the word making God known. So we start to see where, where these two trailheads are, are moving in the same direction. There's some, some things in that verse that we could spend lots of time talking about, how they're, they're written and how they're understood. One of those phrases is, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, right? That becomes a little bit confusing. But if we stop for a moment, we'll, we'll see two things. Number one, the words used to form that verse are the same as the ones that say the only son in verse 14 that we get to. And number two, it's the same, it's the same confusion, the same profoundness that we experienced in the first person. 
we have a God who is with God and who is God. So we shouldn't be shocked when those verses seem, again, like layers for us to unpack. We see on the back half in verse 17, it rooted in God's revelation. God's explanation to his people. It says, for the law of Moses, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I think when I read that, and maybe even some of the text, depending on your translation, there's a but there. I naturally read a but into the middle of that sentence. It says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I I want to separate those two things. And maybe that's a, a product of how I have learned to read the Bible And maybe it's just a product of my desire to cast off all rules and things that I have to follow. But as I take time to read that and I stop and I say, there's not actually a conflict between the law that was given through Moses and grace and truth that were given through Christ. As as much as we like to think that the law is a curse and a burden, and there are scriptures that lead us to understand that that way, the law was God's disclosure to men. Other religions of the world, you were left to guess, right? I'll sacrifice this today, and we'll see what happens. I'll sacrifice that tomorrow and see what happens. And hopefully we'll please the gods, and rain will come. And, and, and you never knew if they were just angry, or if you had done something wrong, or if they woke up on the wrong side of the bed, because they weren't God. God says, no, I'm God, and I'm going to be clear with my people what I need from them and what I can offer them, and what the consequences of their actions will be, good or ill. So the law was a grace. But then it says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So, so how do we understand the distinction? Because they're, they're still not the same. Both were a grace. But certainly what came through Christ in the New Covenant is better than what came through Moses in the Old Testament. We understand it, I think, in a couple ways. One of which was the idea of given through Moses and came through Christ. Moses was the mediator. He received the law and then passed that law on to the people. And that was really all that he had the power to do with the law. Versus John very, very deftly says, but truth came through Jesus. It was not given through Moses. It came in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the first time we see the way we're approaching the scripture, Jesus Christ's name. But we see that the word, Jesus Christ, that grace and truth came with him, that he was the embodiment of those things. So we don't have to to rely on a mediator of the law anymore. You don't need me up here to come to faith. What you need is to hear the gospel. What you need is the word of God, and you have to hear that somehow, so God's put me here for that purpose. But you don't need me as the mediator, as the priest, as the one who will make that available to you you need to hear it. And, and, and I want you to hear those words too because others don't need me or Chuck or Tad or Randy or Todd or Andy. You don't need a pastor of this church to present the truth of Scripture. You need the truth of Scripture and the boldness to speak those words. Grace and truth can also be understood to say that, that Christ came with grace Truly. Not that truly is necessarily supposed to, to affect grace, but, but this idea that it was the truth, the fulfillment, the wholeness. We're going to see fullness coming up here. 
the idea that Christ came not just with the grace of the law, but he came with the full dose of grace for his people. Lastly, on this side of the room, we see the description of Christ rooted in God's fullness, as I just promised. If we look at the, the, the other side of the room where we talked about life and light and darkness, this is the counterpoint to that. Verse 16 says, For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. What is life and light if not that grace upon grace? Furthermore, the, the wording of this is fun. In many ways, grace upon grace could literally have been translated grace instead of grace, or grace replacing grace. And there's a reason why your translation doesn't say that, right? Because that's a little odd. We would have a little bit of trouble with that. But the idea is that literally God replaces grace with grace. Now we, now we think for just a moment about the revelation that we just talked through. The revelation of God in the law was a grace. But it was replaced with grace. Common grace is a grace to all men, but it is replaced with the law. The law is replaced with Christ. Christ is, is, and our relationship with him now is replaced with an eternal dwelling place with him. A new earth. We see grace replaced by grace. Not just, not just waves of grace lapping onto the shore and then rolling back out to sea. We see grace upon grace. Grace instead of grace. Grace is greater than the grace that we've already received. God was, he was the fulfillment. So as we look at how the author John here describes God and his place in our history, as we start to come down the edge of the canyon, I would summarize it using two things. One is a quote from a, a very wise gentleman named D.A. Carson. He says, God's word is in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. And the personification of that word makes it suitable for John to apply as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son, Jesus Christ. So John says, I want you to know who Christ is, but I don't want you to know his name. That's why I didn't start with his name. I want you to know that he is the fullness of God, disclosed to his people. Colossians 1, 15 through 17, and a verse, part of which we read today at the beginning of service, says, he is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, right? We have that idea of only begotten again, or, or only son. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is Paul, right? This is, this is not John somehow trying to separate himself from the other apostles and say, they got it wrong, let me tell you what the truth is. John says, in full harmony with the other, with the other writers, let me tell you who Jesus is, and let me tell you why he came. And then Paul, later in his letter to the Colossians, says, look at how these things come together with what we know of Jesus. In him, all things were created. For him all things were created. It is God's ultimate self-disclosure. It is God's fullness pleased to dwell. So we've made our way off of the, the edges of the rim. We're on the trail downward. We see two more signposts. Now these signposts are 
verses 6 through 8 and verses 15, and I'm going to read them to you, and then we'll talk about them together this time. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. This is the signpost that the folks on, on the North Rim Trail see. And the signpost that the South Rim Trail folks see says, verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Now I'm thankful for these for a couple reasons, one of which is because they create wonderful signposts for me to show how we're moving towards the same goal and how these passages parallel one another. It would be odd to have John sort of reoccurring in this passage this way, if not for that reason. But additionally, there's lots here. So John, who, who is this John? Well, he doesn't specify who this John is, so I will for you momentarily. He's not the John writing this book. That's one thing we have to understand. For those of you who don't know that, John, the apostle who wrote the Gospel of John, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation, is not the man referred to here. John actually never refers to himself by name in his gospel. It's kind of fun. He comes up with other ways to talk about himself. So when he talks about John, he's talking about John the baptizer. I won't call him John the Baptist, because we're at a Baptist church, and I don't want you to think he was the first Baptist. He wasn't. He was John the baptizer. He was the one who baptized ahead of Christ. He was also Christ's second cousin. Again, a wonderful story that we would love to talk about on another day when we have more time. He was the first prophet in nearly 400 years to a nation that had seen silence from God as they moved farther and farther from him and were exiled and were under other nations. He was kind of a weirdo. Uh, there's no avoiding that. He, he was the guy, you know, I, I drove the church yesterday for a couple things and, and we had a street preacher on the side with a blowhorn, you know, yelling into his blowhorn. And I, and I was thinking to myself, does this really work? But then I get to church and I read about John the baptizer and I go, okay, well, I guess I can't rule anything out as working because this is what John did, right? He cried out in the desert wearing camel skins and he, he was sort of an odd guy. But he was the messenger, the herald that God sent. We see that God sent ahead of Christ to declare him. He makes it a point that this is not the light, that he is not the light. And John says over and over, John the baptizer says over and over when he's asked, no, 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 it's that I am not him. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And I wonder if sometimes I'm as good at that, right? No, 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 it's not me. No, I'm not even worthy, right? I'm not Jesus, obviously. But I wonder sometimes if I remember how unworthy I am to speak his name and how much of a blessing it is, a grace it is of his that I can stand here and do that at all. And he takes the time, John the baptizer takes the time in this quotation to recognize the preeminence of Christ. He says, the one who is before me, but who came after me because he was before me, right? You're like, wait, I thought, did he, what now? John the baptizer was older than Christ. Not by much, but he was older. And, and at this time in history and culture, to be first, to be older, had significance. And he said, no, he is, he is greater than me because he was before me. Well, obviously, he doesn't mean age. So this is John the baptizer recognizing his preeminence in all of creation and in eternity. He says, no, this is the one who is eternally with the Father. 
He was before I was dust. I appreciate John's occurrence in this passage because it gives me both a parallel structure and it gives me a little bit of a signpost to a change because John, the apostle, is going to shift here from telling us about who Christ is. He feels like he's covered that for us, at least in the prologue, right? This is just the 18-verse summary of everything that's to come. But he's going to transition from who Christ is to what he came to do. So as you're traveling down the north side, you're about halfway down now. We're making our way into the bottom of the canyon. It's getting warmer as you go down the canyon. Don't ask me. It's super weird, but it happens, I promise. And we see verses 9 and 10. He says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. We see God here, we see Christ here infiltrating his creation. Coming into the world. And it starts as the true light, right? This is to, to, to continue that contrast to John the Baptizer to say that, that he was there to talk about the light, but Christ was the true light. And this is why he's here, right? He comes into the world, and we're going to see another version of this in a moment, but, but he comes into the world, and how does the world respond? The very world that he created didn't know him, didn't recognize him, didn't take the time to get to know him. Now, to know him is more here than, again, to know his name, but I, I won't belabor that now because we're going to talk about it more. So we see that he came into the world, and we just didn't know him. The, the, the hands that formed us were unfamiliar. Those coming on from the south rim would see a similar signpost, and this is where we see the, the sort of Christmas verse of the day, why all of you came here, not because you knew we were preaching this, but just in theory why you came here, right? It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There, there is no doubt that the, this one verse could easily consume a 40-minute message. No, no doubt. There's so much here that we could talk about. So I'm going to try to do it justice in just a minute, and I'm going to keep moving. But don't forget that this is just the prologue. This is just the, the preamble of what comes. It says, And the Word became flesh. Now, flesh here is not a, is not a noble word for humankind. It, it's sort of the... The, the cheapest version of what makes us physical people. But it is exactly that ignoble sense. It is exactly that, that less than wonderful image that is important here because just as much as John wants you to know who Christ is in eternity and in creation, he wants you to know that he took on real, broken, human flesh. The same as you and me, subject to hunger, subject to thirst, subject to sickness, subject to sin. And yet he was able to rise above sin. And then just this little word, and he dwelt among us. Now, there are volumes written on what this word means. And I promise myself that I won't use one particular word because it drives me crazy when people use it. But at the end of the day, what this means is he chose to make his dwelling place with us. He came in fullness to us. Again, this would have major significance 
in both the Greek and the Hebrew understanding. Who God is and why He's here, He came into flesh and dwelt among us. The fullness of God, side by side, in an approachable presence. In a place where we can go, that's what that means. I, I, I hate to summarize because this is, this is monumental. This is, again, the difference between us and so many other faiths. We believe that not only was Christ God, divine, eternally existing, part of the Godhead, but we also believe that he took on real human flesh. It said, and we have seen his glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Who, who is we and who's seen his glory? In this case, I think we is, is literally those, those people who witnessed God, Christ, who saw him in body, in ministry, and ultimately his glory hanging from a cross. But the, the one thing that John doesn't do here is John doesn't give us a, a broad account of the cross in his prologue. He doesn't talk about what Christ did to secure our life and our freedom. Again, you've got to read on. You can't read the prologue. You can't read the, the introduction and assume, well, I've got the book. I'm all set. You have to read on. But it says that they saw his glory, glory as the only son from the Father. This is where we hear the word begotten in some translations. And we're like, well, wait, was he begotten? And this is where confusion begins because, well, if, if he was begotten like, like son, right, then he, then he isn't eternally existing. The, the reason that we don't often see that translated that way anymore is because that does create some confusion. The reality here is that it is meant to say that that is God's unique and special that that is the very image of him, as we might refer to a son and heir, as, as Abraham referred to Isaac as his special heir, even though there was clearly more than one son. So when we hear the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth, again, now we're, we're back to that grace and truth idea that we experienced in the previous verses. This idea that he is the fulfillment of grace. He is the true expression of God. And he chooses to dwell with us. Now normally we would have heard this verse as sort of the center of this passage, right? Up on the screen, if, if the title's up there, it says, and the word became flesh. And, and nine times out of ten, if you hear a sermon preached over these passages, it's exactly that. That is the central point of the sermon. And there's nothing wrong with that. We could spend all day there. And we could dig and we could be warmed by its reality. But I don't believe in this case that we've actually reached the river. I think we're close. I think we're making our way down those last inclines through the flats at the bottom, but we haven't made it to the river yet. So follow me a little longer on this journey, and I'll see if I can help us get there. As you come in from the north again, it's, it reads verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Those coming in from the south would read verse 12. It says, But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Right? As we reach the flats at the bottom of the canyon and these two ideas are coming together, we see two peoples, two distinct peoples. The first people are his own. The, the people for his sake that were selected by God, and set aside for a purpose are the Jewish people. 
And he came to those people, the ones who had long awaited the coming of this Messiah. And when they got her, what happened? They didn't receive him. Now that's a, that's a real polite way of saying they wanted nothing to do with him. They cast him out. Ultimately, they were the ones who crucified him. So as far as not receiving goes, that's about as not received as I think you can get. And yet we have this second group of people, right? The group of people who did receive him. That, that becomes the distinguisher between these two people, right? Which bank of the river I'm on, one did receive and one didn't receive. And who were those people? Well, those people weren't a people before him. They weren't designated before him. But it says that he gave them the right to become. John loves this idea of becoming. This idea of the fact that there, is, there must be a change to become a child of God. And then he goes on to make sure that he is abundantly clear on what that means, right? Not by birth. This is not a bloodline like the Jewish heritage believed itself to be. This was not the will of man. This was not the designation of a father over an heir. This was not anything that we could generate or create. It was not because of us. This was the work of God. Born of God. This new people who actually receive Christ are born of God. So now we've arrived at the banks of the river. We, we stand there and we wonder, well, what's in the river? So you have two peoples, one who received and one who didn't. And in some ways you could put received at the banks of the river. But I believe what lies in the middle of the river can be found as we read 12, 11 through 13 together. It says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name... He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Right? What I think we find in the river is belief. This idea that one group of people believed in his name, and that caused them to receive him. And one group of people did not. And they received him not. This is where we'll spend the rest of our time to understand what does it mean for them and for us to believe in his name. The one thing that I think John wants us to understand more than anything else here is that knowing who he is, knowing his name is simply not enough. I can know who Christ is. I can know the details of his existence, his divinity, his eternity. I can understand the Trinity. The Bible tells us that the demons knew who he was. They feared him because they knew who he was and the power that he wielded. Satan knew who he was. He took him into the desert to tempt him, to try to, to twist his nature to make him the victor, to make Satan the victor. They knew who he was, but that wasn't saving. That was knowledge. That wasn't the belief that we understand. That wasn't knowing him, as I'll explain in a second. In verse 12 of this same book, John 42 and 43, it says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. 
For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. How tragic. How sad. That they preferred the glory of the synagogue where God did not dwell. And set aside the glory of God in Christ where he did. To be known, as in the verses that talk about creation not knowing him, has much greater meaning than to know about. Have you ever heard anybody use the phrase to know someone biblically, right? We're not, we're not talking about that physical sense, but we are talking about that, that spiritual sense, the idea that we know God in more than an informational way, that we have a relationship with him. The other verses that use to receive him, you see that the work of Christ is primarily relational. We know him. We have intimate relationship with him. We receive him as a guest, as a friend, as a family member. Again, shortly later in this book, after John has fed the, I'm sorry, after Christ has fed the 5,000, you see him talking to them and rebuking them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, not because you believed in who I am, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Right? This is our immediate response. Is, well, then, well, then what do I do? How do I know him? What's, what's, what are my next steps? Give me the list of things I need to do. And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. To believe in the name of Christ, to believe in the name of Jesus, to believe in the word is more than to know his name and know facts about him. It is to have relationship with him. It is to accept the grace that he comes with and to trust in him, right? The, the idea of him being full of grace and truth is to say that he is truthful. He is the fullness of truth. Therefore, to believe in his name is not just to know about him, but it is to trust in him, for him to be trustworthy. As I prepared this week for this message, and a few weeks ago I, I did a teaching at our sister church, Light in the Desert, on the majesty of God. I read a book that was called Your God is Too Small. And that book is to say that if, if what you believe in is a God who needs you to clean yourself up, your God is too small. If what you believe in is a God that is your work or your money or your savings or your retirement, your God is too small. If you believe in a God who can't redeem you because you're too far gone, your God is too small. John wants to show you a big God who has been here for all of eternity and who has all power. That's who he wants to show you. And he doesn't just want to show you that for the purpose of showing you that. That's, I think, the problem with making verse 14 the center of this, to say that he came in flesh. But he did that for a reason. He did that so that you might believe in him and have life. And for some of us, that means for the first time hearing and understanding who Christ is. And for the first time hearing that all he wants from me is, is, is my submission, is my giving over of myself and belief. And that he'll even empower me to do that. And for some of us, that means trading in the idols that we have collected for this too small picture of God and who he is. 
close with Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Again, he was here on purpose. If we miss that purpose just to know him, we have missed him entirely. Father God, we are so thankful this morning for who you are and for why you've come. Father, I pray that as we, as we go this morning, we would have a bigger conception of you, that we would see you as a bigger God, one that is truly deserving of our trust and hope, and that we would receive life in you so that we might live that life for you. We bring all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.